and welcome to a new episode of PR360. And I'm your host, Brett Dyser. If you could please subscribe to PR360 on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Leave a review. It really does help with the rankings. Let us know how we're doing. But this week, I have Chris Brogan here, and he is the president of Chris Program Media, and he does offering brand and digital content strategy as well as business strategy advisor services as well. He's also a fellow podcaster, so it's always great to have a fellow podcaster on here as well. Plus, he's helped with brands like Disney, Coke, Google, GM, Microsoft, Caldwell Banker, and many, many more. So it'll be a great time to talk about digital content strategy with him. But welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it, Brett. And my first question has all my guests is, are you a coffee or tea drinker? I do a mix of both. I love uh, plain old iced coffee most of the year, but I do have quite a variety of tea that I tend to go after. So I like the exotic teas that are out there. Oh, what does exotic teas mean? Oh, like Lapsang Suchang or Pu'er or some of the other teas that are a lot more popular in China or Japan than they are here. And then there's, of course, a lot of variants in places like South Africa. So I get around the globe a little in my tea drinking. It's not so much just like uh, sleepy time. Yeah, because I never heard of half of those. And I dabble a little bit in teas. I mean, <laughs> obviously, Art of Tea is probably my favorite one. If you ever heard that, it's in L.A., but they do some pretty good teas. Sure. Yeah, Lapsang Suchang is a bit smoky. It tastes a little bit like uh, if you've ever had things like Laphroaig Scotch. It's like that sort of a feeling in your mouth. Pu'er is also a darker, heady kind of tea. These are teas that people who love coffee uh, use as their kind of gateway drug to tea. Ah, well, I love both. So it's not more of a gateway drug anymore because I can actually drink tea or coffee. Perfect. <laughs> but moving on, could you give us a little bit more of your experience to our listeners since I gave you a brief introduction? Can you do a little bit more of an elevator pitch for them? Oh, sure. So at different times in my life, I've done lots of different things for different companies. But one way or another, I'm always trying to help people figure out how do you connect with the kind of people you want to work with and how do you do the kind of business you want to do at a distance? One way or another, I've showed all the biggest and smallest companies in the world how to use the web to build reputation and trust. How do you connect with people that maybe have only seen you at a distance because of this last year in, in counting? And lately, I've been doing a lot of uh, more work with company-wide branding and also a little bit of acquisitions type work. So helping companies decide where they're going to pick up some people along the way. Gotcha. All the distant everything, as I call it now. We're distant. We're just going to hang out distantly. Yes. Yes. It's, it's a strange world. I think especially for introverts like myself, this is great. Eventually somebody's going to want us to get back out there and shake hands with pants on. Oh, yes. I'm pretty sure pants sales are going up right now. They have to be as we're finally getting back out there. But talking about digital content strategy, what was like the strategy about? Was it Did it change at all from 2022 to 2021? Did people go, oh, man, I didn't really have one. Now I have to really think about one. So not every business in the world needs a content strategy. I guess I'll start there. But I would say that a lot of businesses have some really weird ideas on how they think they're going to attract the attention of the people that they hope to serve. I think there's a lot of chances where there's some really easy content wins that'll help people understand or make better choices, right? So if, for instance, you're going to buy a cool new microphone for podcasting, wouldn't you really hope that company has an awesome, like, here's the fastest way to get that thing set up out of the box. Here's the other eight things you might need to know before you really launch the podcast. There's a lot of ways that 
from companies, business to business or business to consumer, can create interesting information that's going to make it easier for people. Uh, a really good installation guide is content marketing, if you think about it. So even if we're talking big B2B software, like software as a service, like the company I'm working with now, it's just the same. If you have a really personable, great, fast, easy to reference install guide that runs more like a cool website than it feels like a white paper, you're going to be happier than some of the other people you deal with. And I'm always looking for that. I'm looking for how can a company make a better connection to people through some kind of content? And if there's no instant content kind of a win, what can we do to stay connected and earn people's ability to sell and serve? Gotcha. So basically what I'm hearing is that Road does a pretty good job with their kind of installation guides. I've used them several times. So is that type of what you're looking for is that it's super easy to set up they understand that they got beginners to experts. And so they got to like find the happy medium or as I like to do it when I worked for a tech company, you do the guides for the beginners. And then if the experts need to use it, they can use it as well. Sure. The best way I've always seen it done in a tech company is you have a big fat guide for the beginner and you have the big one page cheat sheet for the people who have done it a million times just need to know the recipe for this software or whatever. Which five command line commands am I going to need to get this thing ready? And then you leave the book behind in case I need it. Gotcha. And for PR pros and brands in general, did you think that they have to rethink their content strategy now since it seems like... Audio seems to be a little bit more important as this past year we've seen podcasting become a very important part of people's listening habits throughout the day, actually, because it, before it was just kind of like in the morning and then it was at night, but you had that big stretch of no one was really listening during the afternoon hours. So since 2005, I feel like everybody should have had something to do with podcasting, but I've been wrong every year. As people are saying that audio took a big rise this past year, I think it took a dump because there were a lot less people commuting. A lot of people were working in their house. And so if I have a choice between immersing all of my senses and watching something, I'd sooner watch it. So to me, a video might be the better show. But with that said, we're getting back towards commuting. And yes, podcasting did get a lift from people being home, maybe just a lot more dog walking or something. I think that there's still a great benefit to having good audio content. The question about audio, video, text, anything like that, it's where can you do the right kind of connection with people that's going to be helpful to them? So for instance, a cooking show is always much better as a visual. So you fold the piece over this is a lot easier than explaining it into a microphone. Audio is great. For instance, if you're doing step-by-step -step instructions. So if you're in front of the keyboard, this is where you would do this and make sure you do this part next and whatever. So I think the medium tends to drive the application and the experience a little bit more than, gee, we should have some audio because someone said we should have some audio. That's how I've always gone after it. Mm-hmm. And... Are we going to see more of a multi-channel or omni-channel type of strategy when it comes to content? Because like we talked about video, audio, text, I mean, we're seemingly having different multi-strategy ways of dealing with this now since it's not just pictures and text. Brett, it's crazier because you got to think, do you or don't you want to do live streaming? Do you or don't you want to put something on channels that are a little more B2C like TikTok, even if you're a B2B company? One of those things that people tend to forget when they're talking about content is they're like, these people are business to business. In some way, they're like phones and devices are all gated from ever consuming consumer content. I don't know whose desk you've been standing next to lately. 
but you're always hiding some video from the boss. Guess what those are? They're surely not install guides. So I think there's a lot of good content out there that draws the attention of people who work in big B2B entities. So there's a lot more platforms. And I, and I never advocate for, you should be on TikTok or you should be on Snap. I don't care. It's, to me, it's all the same church, different pews. But should you make content that's different than just white papers and email sales letters? Absolutely. Should you write a useful newsletter, which is another place that's growing this last couple of years, including the advent of paid newsletters, you're going to see a lot more growth in that. And that's a 1990s era social network that I think is doing great. Yeah. I mean, I've seen more email newsletters being used, but from like a perspective of PR people, do you think they don't really understand like how to create the actual audio content or the video content? Do you think they're a little bit lagging behind just because they've never had to do it or was forced to do it? My argument for a very long time, or especially my put down is that it doesn't fit on their spreadsheet. There's not a spot on their spreadsheet that says, I can't wait to have a podcast going. It's work. No matter which technology you choose, no matter which method you choose, if you're doing video, you've got to worry about lighting. You've got to worry about background. You've got to worry about if you've got to make edits, it gets much harder, which is why I run, for instance, a live video show because no one expects a lot of edits. They expect you to make a mistake and keep going. I find that with something like audio podcasting, the best shows are the ones that take a little time to, to edit out. So I feel like it's a bunch of details that PR professionals wish they didn't have to deal with. Or they'll say, my customer isn't in that demographic. Well, pretty much as far as I can understand, the podcast demographics like 17 to 90. So unless you're selling to infants with their own funds, somebody's in your demo. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really know how to do podcasting until I figured it out. And it was a lot more time than I thought it was actually going to be. Definitely a lot more time and a lot more mistakes. Most people don't have no idea how just how difficult it can be sometimes. Agreed. Agreed. With any new technology, there's a learning curve. And with things like, if you're a podcaster and you're doing it all yourself, there's so many disciplines in the same process. So you have to learn to be an engaging host, ask the right kind of questions, draw people to the story that you hope to portray on the episode, and learn how to edit the technology, make sure the ums are all gone, and do things like, post it to the right places, get it acquired into Spotify podcast network, the Stitcher podcast network, and the other 12 networks you need to put it in these days. There's a lot to it. It's nobody's super easy method. Nope. I mean, some of the podcast hosting sites do it a little bit easier, but most, yeah, mostly you just have to go find it and then figure out how to get your RSS feed on the thing, which sometimes can be like a little bit of an Olympics of like, well, okay, go here, go here. Cause there's like several pages sometimes and I'm like, this could be so much easier if you just have one page. Truly so. Truly. But moving on to Clubhouse, because Clubhouse seems to be coming onto the scene all of a sudden, and people are like, ooh, this is a new technology for drop-in, drop-out audio, and everybody can participate. So do you see how this is going to help PR pros and brands rethink audio content? Because it's another layer that even LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Discord actually has it, and Slack is bringing it in as well. I have a fairly negative view of this concept for a couple of reasons. One is it is basically just another broadcast medium, not a multicast medium. Which podcast is we sign that deal? Like we say, I think I would like to download this piece of content and listen to it at my leisure. And you're not expecting to feed back into it. 
possible opportunity. But problem with something like Clubhouse is you go there into an environment where you could possibly get your voice heard and you don't. So there's a lot of opportunities to feel like the odd person out or picked last in gym class and a lot of real base human emotions get triggered in there. So you can go in and sometimes there's somebody really famous doing something really interesting and you just want to listen and you don't care. You're like, oh man, I'm so happy to listen. But if, for instance, you and I go into a podcaster's forum or something, we're going to want to have something to say. If someone's going to say something like, road mics stink and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, they're my favorite ones. I've really enjoyed them over all these years. And you can't because you have to wave your hand around like a kindergartner. So I think there's a lot of negative possibilities for these audio things. And I hate to sound like everyone's mom, but just because your friends jump off a bridge, are you going to? I feel like audio platforms like suddenly showing up everywhere is like last year when stories showed up everywhere. And we were all making the joke that like there's going to be stories on Excel. I don't think there's a massive yield to it, but I think that it does point to the fact that we are a lot more eager to hear disparate messages than we are just homogenous messages. Do you know what I mean? Like I would much sooner go into a clubhouse and listen to an Olympic canoe athlete than I would to just go to ESPN and watch baseball. You know what I mean? So if, if it can niche down that far, there's a benefit to those kinds of platforms. And that means there's a benefit to businesses that need to draw attention to somebody that matches that niche. What you're saying is people are just looking for more diverse opinions and Clubhouse seems to, at the time or right now, fit that mold right now, may not later. Yes. I think that's the big opportunity, not so much the medium. I don't think the medium is super interesting because of the negatives that I pointed out, that there's a lot of ways that you feel bad. But I think the positive is, Anyone can start a room and, and a bunch of people can join it and vote with their feet to leave. I think these are beautiful details. I don't know how much of my hours in a day I would put to it uh, as far as a strategy goes. Well, my friend, for instance, who does PR in the beauty space, beauty products, salons, and all that sort of thing, she says it's like a renaissance for them. They're having massive success using Clubhouse and those kinds of apps. Don't count me out two-thirds grumpy old man and one-third I might be right. Fair enough. I mean, it's funny because now Facebook is all interested in audio when they weren't five years ago, they were all interested in video. So it's almost like a backwards thing where like, Oh look, clubhouse is doing, okay, now we're going to do a podcasting directory where you can post your episodes directly into Facebook now, or in a few months, I should say. So it's funny that they finally care about it now, even though they don't really, it's just another feature for them. It's algorithm food. So I did, I launched my live video show on Facebook and every other platform I had the ability to post to. And when I finally got LinkedIn live, I was like, yes. And now I'm on eight or so platforms, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, and I can't remember a couple. And of those, Facebook is giving me the least help. They're pointing the least people to my live video because the algorithm decided they're sick of live video. And so I get really no help from Facebook unless I want to buy it. And then my gosh, I get a lot of help, but I stopped paying attention to them as the place to think about the quality ever since that feeling happened to me in live video. And I cannot fathom investing in Facebook in their social audio for that same reason. I would sooner, if it's between clubhouse and something else, I would go between clubhouse and Twitter spaces. True. I think Facebook for live actually cares more about the gaming side of it because of Twitch and everything. And Twitch being the most popular platform to live stream your game. So they care more about the live streamers that just game 
which is unfortunate because live streaming is more than just gaming, but it became popular because of gaming. They burned Mixer into the side of a wall, and there's a lot of crazy moves that went with that. And I think that, for instance, Twitch was like, yeah, bring your business show to us, baby. We love you. And I feel like it's going to switch the other way. I don't think Twitch will ever get this sort of mainstream 2 billion plus users, but I do think that people looking for diverse content will have an easier time surfacing it on platforms like Twitch. In 2006 or 2007, I guess it was, I went out and tried to pitch a kind of new version of TV Guide for internet videos. And we were way too early and everyone thought we were big stupid idiots. And I still think there's something for that because there's a lot of people out on these disparate platforms who aren't going to know about our shows. And I wish that there was an easier way to surface that. And I don't think it's Google. No, I think you do have a point because of, well, first of all, the streaming service is popping up and nobody knows what's going on with all of them because there are so many different ones, so many different shows. You're like, wait, which one do I get? And so there's no actual guide, TV guide, quote unquote, to actually help that. But then that type of platform could also help with just independent content too of like, oh, you may like this or you may like this. 100%. And in the case of Twitch, Amazon does, if you like this, you might like this also. They don't do that at Twitch. I am a streamer on StreamYard because that broadcasts to multiple live things. And StreamYard has no sense of that. They treat themselves like a software company. I just spoke to the founders three days ago and I sort of tried to push them in that direction. Like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you thought of us as your streamers and put some of your faces together on some billboard somewhere? And they were like, nope, we're a software company. That's what you learned. Like, you learn that they're not going to treat it like a media channel. And to me, that's what they're going to have a challenge. Meanwhile, what are we seeing in mergers and acquisitions right now? We're seeing paid newsletters get bought up like crazy. We're seeing like ridiculous money getting changing hands for media of all kinds, such as uh, websites, BuzzFeed buying HuffPo, those kinds of moves. We're going to see even more of that consolidation. And I think we might even see some roll-ups or at least maybe some syndications from people like myself who just didn't feel served by my platform. And so I'll just make my own syndication and see what happens there. And so, I mean, that's a good point is that these companies like StreamYard doesn't understand that Restream does the, almost the same thing they do, but they also have extra stuff like scheduling. They also have extra stuff like you could host a interview right through their own website now. And so for, I mean, we could pivot to, for these actual media companies, they need to rethink their own strategy and just not be a software company. They have to be a company where a community is built upon. Is that what I'm hearing? You're there, Brett. I feel, and, and you know, other minds besides mine have said this, but I think all companies are media companies now. And it's just whether or not you decide you're going to do something with it. And when I say that, if you sell a really deliciously useful wrench to a bunch of mechanics, maybe you're not a media company. But for a real lot of people who sell something that other people need to use, I think if you don't look at yourself like one, then you're going to buy so much more than earned media. Do you know what I mean? Your, your paid budget is just going to go up crazy. So you might as well kiss some margin goodbye unless you invest in having some earned media to go with it. And I mean, even going back to a little bit of Clubhouse, I always thought Clubhouse should really fit in with the LinkedIn because LinkedIn is trying to do the whole like, we're trying to be like the professional website for just content in general. And so they're finally doing it, but I always feel like LinkedIn is always behind everything. Always. Microsoft doesn't like first mover advantage at all. They've never been a first mover company. And since forever, what they're, they get bulletproof 
and then they roll forward. But you're so right. I've had such a love-hate relationship with LinkedIn since the start. In the way old days, I used to get talked about sometimes in the hallways because I was a promiscuous connector when that wasn't at all a thing. Before there were like lions and all that. I would say yes to anyone who came along. Why not? And it would wreck parts of their software because of the volume I was passing by being connected to so many people. So that's the early days. I think so many people use LinkedIn so wrong. I, th I think so few people know that they could be doing like their slideshare things. There's just so many things, the courseware, all the things that LinkedIn has bought, if you just look at their acquisitions over the last five years, all point to, we want to be an insanely interesting rich media company, which means they want to be like Disney plus for you and me. You and I create our version of WandaVision on there, except it's about whatever, our business, things we're passionate about, et cetera. There's some really interesting people on there who I wish would make some content so that I don't just have to read their experience timeline again, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that you say that because they have stories, but stories are only on the mobile one, which I don't really see most people actually use a lot. Even I'm kind of like, uh, okay, whatever. I mean, you have LinkedIn stories, which doesn't really mean much to me, but I think for like the slide share, they don't really use that too much anymore. It seems like it's kind of like a offhand distant acquisition that they forgot about because they usually do. I mean, groups was a great thing and then left and now it's back. And it seems like LinkedIn doesn't really know what to do with their acquisitions. A lot of times they just acquire them and then let them go and then quietly just don't talk about them anymore. Which is when they bought the course company, Linda, they, I was worried that was going to be the same thing. But if you look at your homepage now, they have LinkedIn news in the upper right corner. And then right below that, today's most viewed courses, to which I just was like, what? But look at them. Somebody's getting some real good value out of that, I'm sure. So number three course of today, when you and I are recording, is unconscious bias. I guess I would take a look at that. Why not? But there I am in LinkedIn, and I'm not there to update my resume. I'm up there and saying, oh, that's interesting, of course. So you're right. I don't think they treated it especially well. And I, I think that, for instance, like SlideShare, they didn't know what to do with it yet. Because I, again, I don't think they see themselves as a media company. I mean, as we're talking to PR professionals, instead of pitching to a client, you could pitch to a channel like LinkedIn and say, man, we could develop so much more on these platforms. You should let us be like your talent search. And I think it would be huge. Which actually moves on to my next question about should brands and PR pros be rethinking the influencer model and make their own influencers since most of them become media companies, find that employee that you think could be the most influential because buying influencers is starting to get more expensive, which budgets being keep on going up and up. You can still find smaller ones, but still, I mean, they're not, nothing's going to be cheap. So would rethinking that influencer model and going, Hey, let's do our home grown influencer. Stop what you're doing. Stop listening to Brett and I. Go buy the book Winfluence by Jason Falls. And then you can come back and listen to the rest of the podcast. Winfluence by Jason Falls. That book is a great book. When he told me what he was writing about, I was like, oh, Jason, don't. But it's, it's a great book on a very different perspective on this whole scene. He doesn't like to call it influencer marketing. He does like to think of influence marketing and how one drives it. This can't not sound jerky, but I've been an influencer for a lot of different projects, which is, I guess, just the only way to make the term. Hey, Chris seems cool. Panasonic will hire him and he'll show off Panasonic cameras and people will buy them. That's an influencer, right? Every now and again, it works because it would make sense why I would be the one sharing a product. But for instance, I was part of a campaign 
that came around because I really love Cadillac, a couple of very specific models of Cadillac. And I thought I could really do some cool projects with them. And they said, great, let's talk about how you can help Buick. And I was like, I don't like Buick. Like that, that makes no sense. I like that girl right there. Great. Let me introduce you to my cousin. That's not what I'm saying. So I feel like there's so much broken. There's so much broken. So just by influence by Jason Falls, I'll seed my answer to him. Gotcha. No worries. And for brands, I mean, obviously drop in, drop out is here to stay for the time being, but do you think they should start thinking about strategies for that specific thing? Maybe for events, having a more of a big a drop and drop out audio little mini section, or even try to figure out how to do networking virtually through a drop and drop out, do one-on-ones. Should they be rethinking that as well and making sure that drop and drop outs work well for them? I mean, I never say no to reassessing parts of your strategy and your process and the, the places you spend your time. I feel like anytime I, I fight something like that, I get that pushback that says, it's working great for me. Then keep doing it. But I, I feel like there's a lot of things that we keep doing, almost like it's going to church. We're sit, stand, kneeling our way through some procession, and we're saying the thing that we've said every day of church over 70 years or something, our parents included in that 70. But maybe we need something different. Maybe we need a slightly different view. Maybe there's a reason that things get reinvented all the time, because we need to refresh our connection to the actual value or end point of what we're doing. Telemarketing is still an effective technology, which blows my mind. But telemarketing is effective because people still, for whatever reason, feel like, oh, it would be impolite of me not to answer this call. So we're praying on a hook in someone's mental setup. So I think that with things like drop in, drop out or anything else, it's it's all about, am I making it work? Is it working for me? If it's not, can I divert some of my time and money to somewhere else to, to put up a different opportunity? And even now pivoting a little bit more into virtual events, because I feel like this is a good thing for content. We've seen virtual events just not do very well. They weren't as good in the beginning. I think they're getting a little better, but I even went to like some networking thing for virtual when you couldn't go anywhere and it was awful. I was like, can't meet anybody with 50 people on a zoom call. So do you think they need they need to figure out a way to like, for example, Microsoft Teams have like breakout rooms or something like that, figure out a way of like using breakout rooms for only one-on-ones instead and trying to figure out a better way of doing virtual events because they're here to stay regardless if we like them or not. They're effective enough, but they're not there yet. It seems like we tried our best and we just failed miserably with all these virtual events. Since the 90s, I have been engaged in some virtual event platform or another as somebody who's run conferences and also as someone who speaks professionally. There's the virtual style where you walk around with your stupid avatar. There's things like Hopin, which is a fairly recent version of some of these technologies. I've used so many of them that the names almost all blur to me. On24, I think is one or something 24. Uh, they're all, they all have the same flaws. And one of the biggest flaws in going to any virtual event, again, when you go back and you listen to this audio, Brett, you're going to go, wow, he keeps talking about like psychological triggers and emotional feelings and all that sort of thing. I think this is what drives all this. So even though we're talking tech, what I'm feeling in my belly is when you go to a virtual event, you can't even feel more lonely than when you're there in person. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of going to an event, you're there and you're just kind of trying to hope to get some information, make some contacts, 
nobody. So you're like in the backs of the rooms and whatever. And I, I've been that guy, even though I'm, I'm an international keynote speaker. Like there should be some vague thought that someone might see me at a conference and go, hey, I know that guy. But I've been absolutely alone in a crowd in a room and thought, this sucks. Like, I just hate the feeling. Well, virtual events to me feel that way, no matter what they try. They put a bunch of fake avatars around me. They put a bunch of things that let me grab the bubbles of other people's bubbles. And then we make a circle out of the bubbles or something like this. It's always some like the the user interface of this is always, or the user experience too, is always not pleasant. Meanwhile, I've watched funny videos of things like VR chat. And I go, man, I'd rather hang out with these people. Like I would rather talk complete, utter nonsense and know that I'm somebody's fodder for a YouTube channel with a thousand subscribers than go to a real conference because of how painful it is. I feel like there's so much to be done there. Again, as a professional speaker, I was just like everybody, 90 plus percent of my business went away with COVID because I'm not flying anywhere. No one's flying anywhere. Everything got shut down. So we had to invent something. Just before you and I started talking, I tweeted just for humor's sake, I sure wish there was a free webinar available this week. Because you know what? Oh my gosh. We're so sick of it. We go outdoors now and, and do these weird things. Look at the sky because we're just so sick of what's on our monitor. So I think it's a tough, it's a really tough road. And I love trade shows, Brett, but I think it's a really tough road coming forward. Gotcha. And what do you think the future of content strategy is going to look like? We talked about, it seems like almost going back to the basics of content strategy and re-looking at the old stuff that we thought, and eh, it's never going to work. Is that going to be like, kind of like records becoming popular again? It's a great question. My answer to that is that smaller and smaller bites for sure. So for instance, there's a series called the, the Fine Brothers. And so it was Kids React and they were doing a Kids React to Metallica and they were playing this new Metallica song. And what I noticed was that the kids didn't consider any of the audio coming out of the speaker, music or the song until the vocals started. 47 seconds into the song, James Hetfield starts to sing. They go, oh, finally, the song is starting. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, what a, like, observation. This is a bunch of 10 and 12-year-olds. This is why YouTube trailers and commercials and stuff have that five to second, please don't skip us, but I'm going to show you something in that five seconds, and then you can skip us. Like, we're wired for less and less and less time to make our decision where we're going to put our attention. So if media people are still trying to create, like, these bohemian rhapsody sized pieces in a world that really just wants like a ringtone sized a bit of content you're in trouble and if i were sitting in a room full of the people listening to your show right now brett here's where they would say i disagree because i read long-form content and i always go great if you can make enough marketing money off just you as a customer then that's a very valid opinion but what happens is the U.S. Department of Labor and Statistics says that people read on average a total of 19 minutes a day. Read is very generous, includes text messages and things like that, Facebook posts, all that. 19 minutes a day. Brett, I'm a New York Times bestselling author. Do you think I want to write a lot more books in my future? Not if nobody's reading them. So what am I going to do? I'm going to have to make short form videos. I'm going to have to make bite-sized videos, series of videos where there's like episodic content because at the same time they read that 19 minutes a day, we binge Falcon and the Winter Soldier in a day and a half. We, and then we go really quickly to WandaVision, and then we go really quickly to Mandalorian. Disney has sold itself on sequential short-form content. 
back in the 1990s, George Lucas said, my next big frontier will be on TV screens. And I thought that's the craziest thing I ever heard. And guess what? He was right. I think that's totally where it goes, Brett. We have to start at the idea that attention is super finite and you have to earn every single breath. Or even for books, it's going to be more audio books going to be probably become the more popular forms instead of actual real books, even though I actually buy real books. <laughs> sure. There's 30 on either side of my, to the left of my monitor, there's about 15 to the right, there's 15. But what I would say is that even the length of books, some of the more and more popular books are mostly small or what we're doing is we're buying a name. Oh, Tim Ferriss put out another 500 page tome that I could use as a personal defense weapon. We buy it because we like Tim Ferriss. We almost never read past X pages or sometimes we flip through it when we're thinking we need an idea on some random page. Ferris is a great guy, awesome writer. I love his stuff, but that's a hefty weighted book. I look at other books that are out there and right now. The same thing sells paper versions of books as always did. How wide can the spine be so that if I'm seeing it in a real world physical bookstore and it's turned in sideways, I can get enough of an idea of what it's about that I'm going to pull this book out of the stack. How embarrassing and weird is that? It's the nature of things where, I mean, books are old. They've been around since the Gutenberg press figured out how to, even before that, but handwritten books, but every old technology, and this is more my opinion, seems to come back around. It just takes a while. Sometimes people are like, oh, I miss actually reading books for some odd reason, but I really want to read books again because we get so inundated with videos, podcasts. I'm going to put them in there because eventually people are going to get somewhat tired of it. You're going to have basically a saturation point with all that. And people are like records, records all of a sudden came back for some odd reason. Absolutely. Vinyl is outselling a lot of other media in some ways. For people who really love music, which would be the kind of people who'd buy vinyl, it feels like you're giving more to the artist. As once you hear that a streamer basically gets like zero, 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 two pennies a play, you're like, oh, I just bought the new Foo Fighters on vinyl. I must have given them four bucks. You, you feel a little better. And I think that that's a way. One thing that's also going to change this dramatically are two technologies that are out there, but not fully d dispersed. Micropayments, things like Venmo. Uh, cash app, those kinds of things, getting to more places, things like Patreon and all that. And then of course, blockchain, which underlies things like cryptocurrencies, because blockchain allows you to stick legal contracts into a piece of technology. So you could buy a song just to listen to, and you'd pay one price, the same song in the same software program you could buy to put on your Hollywood movie. And of course you might pay 50 grand or hundred grand or whatever. I don't know what you make for that song in your movie. And the same technology can make the transaction just as easy. So Brett goes, I'll just listen to it. Someone else says, I need this for my masterpiece. And the person gets the money either way. Those two technologies are going to change how we deal with music, I think. So I think there's some really exciting parts to it. I just think also that it just means the same thing we said at the beginning. If you're going to work in the land of PR and marketing and comms, you better plan to change all the time. You really should just put your wedding ring on change because that's who you're with forever now. All right. Fun question for you. If you create any new form of content, what would it be? Video show. I make video shows all the time. I, I make little bitty ones. I have the the show I've been doing for a whole year now, the backpack show. Every now and again, I'll make just spin-off version of a show to see if it's going to do something cool. I think video. It's fast and easy. Live video uh, specifically. Gotcha. Any final thoughts for our listeners? Any final thoughts? I think anytime you you consume something like this and you say to yourself that guy's so wrong 
I'm such that person. I'm super judgy and I'm super the one who wants to call other people wrong. You can absolutely think I'm wrong, but go test it for yourself. Test any of the things Brett and I talked about because you never know. I've spent the last two years realizing how many things I thought were true that aren't. Maybe you'll find the same. All right. Thank you, Chris, for joining PR360. Really appreciate you sharing your knowledge on content and everything else that we talked about. Thanks for having me on, Brett. And thank you for listening to PR360. As always, please subscribe to PR360 on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Leave a review. It really does help with the show. And join us next week as we talk to another great thought leader in the PR industry. All right, guys, stay safe. Go test something out. See for yourself if it works out and see you next week. Later.